Hello and welcome to the Late Discovered Club, the podcast that aims to give late discovered autistic women a voice. We bring you real life self-discovery stories and compassionate conversations with some truly incredible women. Created and hosted by me, psychotherapist Catherine Astor, whose own self-discovery came at 42. With the behind the scenes technical expertise coming from my eldest daughter, Katie Ava. This podcast really is a mum and daughter collaboration. Today on the podcast on episode four, This Is Who I Am, is Andrea Anderson. Andrea discovered her autism aged 45, just as the world was turning on a pandemic axis. And what followed were two years of a carefully constructed world unravelling. Reviewing her life through the lens of autism took her from an awareness of having autism, which brought both comfort and fear, to an acceptance of being autistic. Andrea's neurodivergence discovery came about through the identification of it in her eldest son, who has very much helped her to get insight into the magical autistic mind. And she knew if she wanted him to grow up not hiding who he truly is, or feeling ashamed of his difference, that she needed to do the work on herself too. With a 10-year-plus experience of working in fast-growing, dynamic fashion and digital businesses, Her focus during that time was on creating cultures for innovation and for individuality to thrive. And during her time at ASOS, she helped the business grow a team of 100 to 800 over four years, focusing on things that developed inspirational leadership that were engaging and motivated people. And whilst on paper, this all sounds very fabulous and successful, she experienced many bouts of burnout in this time always wondering why she was unable to manage her stress, receiving feedback all the way throughout this career that she just needed to toughen up and be more confident in herself. And when Andrea left this career in 2011, she was severely burnt out and devoid of any belief in herself at all. Having a lifelong curiosity about identity and understanding how humans work, Andrea has accidentally designed a life that works with her autistic strengths and needs. As a co-active professional coach, she then founded a coaching business called Who I Am. And discovering her autism made her mission to create environments in which humans can thrive finally fall into place. And writing is not only a joy for Andrea, it helps her to make sense of her thoughts and her feelings. And it was a total lifeline for her in getting from awareness to acceptance of her own autism. Andrea is in the final stages of writing a book This Is Who I Am, A Guide to Thriving with Late Life Autism Discovery, which will be published by Jessica Kinsley Publishing later on in 2023. And Andrea lives in lively and creative Brighton with her family, two sons and husband. So Andrea, thank you for joining me this morning on episode four of the Late Discover Club podcast. Um, where are you coming from today in the country? So I am coming to you from Brighton, uh, which is not very sunny today, but yeah, down on the southeast coast in the UK. Well, I'm in a rainy Yorkshire today, Nilkley, and you can probably hear some of the rain in the background as I'm talking. Um, so that'll all add to the experience. So I really want to start with 
your self-discovery, Andrea. So you were 45 when you discovered your autism. You described it just as the world was turning on a pandemic axis. Mm. But what was the trigger or turning point for you that made you explore your autism? So um, I've got two boys. Um, My eldest boy has always been very obviously different um, beautiful and you know wonderful in so many ways um, but very different and I'd really ninjured away sort of um, the illumination of that difference from a very young age so from when he was three and at, and at nursery and struggling with his uh, speech and language I was sort of batting away any the bit of there being a problem um, and in February 2020, uh, I went to a school quiz night with him and um, it was really seeing firsthand how distressing it is for him to be in such a noisy environment. It was, you know, quite shocking for me, really, to, to sort of see how his sensory processing was was just so affected by the noise and the expectation and a teacher came over and put the ear defenders on him and I was quite I was quite shocked because I didn't know that that was happening for him I think I'd I'd really chosen not to see and understand that and witnessing his distress and seeing how challenging it was for him to really wanting to join in and take part um, you know, it's a quiz night and he had these ear defenders on and I was sort of saying, well, how is he going to hear? How is he going to join in? But I very quickly could see, actually, this is, that's not even a consideration for him. Just being in this environment is is so um, overwhelming for him. And it was at that point that I just thought, you have been trying to protect this beautiful boy from standing out and being different. And that's not really, that's not helpful for him. Actually, it's harmful. And, you know, there'd been sort of hints for, for quite a long time um, from from school and, you know, lovely people and teachers saying, oh, you know, potentially they weren't saying autism, but it was always kind of inferred. And I was just, I was so frightened about autism, you know, from really sort of back in the early part of 2012, 2013. I just didn't know what it was. And I was just hearing all these horror stories about it being caused by the inoculations and autistic children not being demonstrative in their love. And I was so frightened of that, um, that I just shut it out. And and it really took that one incident for me to to finally realise, like, wow, this you have to do something to to help and to understand and then from that point the next day I I, um, go into yoga with another friend um, who has an autistic child and, and I talked to her about it and I really remember her saying to me it's so comforting for your child to have um, an understanding of their difference to have a language around it to be able to know that there's nothing wrong with them that it's it's just that they experience the world differently and and really from that point of the quiz night onwards you know I've fully immersed myself into understanding what autism is and once we'd understood how it could present in my son and um and had some really positive conversations with him about it actually because 
because having witnessed the stress that he was experiencing, it was a, a route in to say, wow, that was really stressful. Like, what was that like for you? Um, and he, and he, he actually asked us to go and get some help for him to understand his brain because his brain was really tired. You know, he did this amazing drawing for us. He, he, um, he does amazing drawings, actually. And that's how he communicates a lot of his feelings. So it gave us a way to positively discuss it with him. And and once we've done that, then, you know, um, like most autists, I have a thirst for knowledge and information. And I just totally went into this whole rabbit hole of what is autism, what, you know, and, and then it was quite a short hop for me to start to think about, and it kept coming up, there's a genetic link, there's a genetic link. And as soon as you know, I started to look at that and 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 read some some things about how it presents in women. The minute I read it, I my whole world just slowed down. Like I, I just had this total like, oh, that is me. That that this is me. This is my experience of life. And I just didn't I just didn't know it existed. I just didn't know anything about it so yeah my discovery you know was quite fast in a sense I'd really pushed it away I didn't want to know anything about it but as soon as I let it in it was like a sort of the floodgates opened and then of course we went into lockdown yeah and I was going to ask you about that because going on that self-discovery journey at the point of the world locking down it's interesting what was your experience then of having this this newfound knowledge and this newfound perspective about yourself going through a lockdown situation where a lot of the world and a lot of the triggers yeah century perspective are are shut out aren't they totally I mean it was just such a strange time wasn't it and just never been through anything like it before so my husband is shielding he's quite seriously ill so we, we actually couldn't leave the house very often. The, the whole world, it was very strange. But actually, it was just delightful, the peace and the quiet, wasn't it? And, you know, we did the whole thing with, right, let's get the um, the schooling timetable together. <laughs> let's have a family meeting. I got the flip chart out and I did all the kind of ridiculous, like, this is what our week is going to look like. And it looked nothing like that at all. So once I'd kind of settled into the groove of like, we just have to surrender to this, it is quite peaceful. And our days, there's lots of quiet time and, you know, the kids are off reading or doing stuff. And and so I had time. I, I didn't have to be anywhere. I didn't have to go out and go to work or do anything for sort of those first few weeks. So I had a lot of time to read. And it, I had that real conflict of, wanting to know more about it but really not wanting to know more about it 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 brought sort of both fear and comfort for me fear of what I was going to uncover when I started to look deeper into it but comfort that like oh my goodness this you know this is actually a thing this is like there's a whole world of of other people experiencing the same things that I've experienced and god that's that's really comforting to know that so um I actually, I actually really enjoyed the quietness of lockdown and I loved going into the garden and I loved birdsong and we're all together, our family, we we just had each other. So, you know, for me, actually, when life started opening up, I was quite anxious about it for a while because 
I'd like the cocoon of um, the quietness and the easy, gentle rhythm and the feeling that, you know, in my friendship groups and within our communities, we couldn't see each other, but there was so much support and sharing um, of how are you, you know, like a much deeper connection with people. And and actually throughout this time, as I was discovering it and reading it, I had just a really beautiful exchange with another mum in the community. And I, I sort of confessed to her, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at if I'm autistic. And, and she just sent me the most wonderful message saying, oh, that's so exciting and wonderful and congratulations. So I, I took a lot of comfort, actually, from my very small community and my very close interaction with friends that I probably wouldn't have had. So you went into lockdown just discovering this about yourself and then you re-emerged back into the world with this newfound knowledge. What did you find in terms of adapting your environment? What did you find that you discovered about yourself during that time then, during lockdown? What did you need in your environment as you came out? Well, I think I'd already started designing a life that worked for me with my autism, like unbeknown to me. Um, I've got my own office, so I've got a quiet space to work in. The work that I do as a coach, you know, I, I have amazing sessions where I'm interacting sort of in a, a really deep, deeply connected way with a client. And then I can decide to have like an hour's break afterwards to just, you know, rest my brain and get ready for the next session. I really enjoy writing. So um, a lot of my time was, you know, taken up with coaching and, and writing a lot about blogs and articles and, and lots of different things. So I'd already been creating an environment that works for me and work that I love. And I'm in the middle of um, actually getting a shed built in our garden, a writing shed to work in because, you know, I've realised actually even though I only had to walk down the hill to, to an office. As the world opened up, I was just like, I don't like the traffic. I don't like the noise. I don't really like even coming out here. So um, quietness, working alone, interacting with people, but having breaks in between and dipping in and out of lots of lovely learning communities, um, but very much being able to um, structure my day and structure my time as, as I wanted to. Um, working independently is a really important thing for me in sort of protecting my energy. And I wonder how different that would be then, because I was going to ask you about your self-disclosure. So you were talking about, you know, one of the first person you disclosed to about your autistic discovery and, and your sons and having this very positive um, affirming experience mm. and obviously you've already been creating this working environment that you need whether you knew it or not mm. you you have been creating a nurturing environment for the way that you work so you're self-employed but if you were still in the business and in the mm. career that you were in that you left you know over 10 years ago you did over 10 years in fashion, didn't you, ASOS? You mm. described creating cultures for innovation and individuality to thrive. It's very hard, isn't it, to look back in, in hindsight. But if you were still in that environment, if you were still having to go to work, still having to commute, still having to do things that people ask of you in a way that they need you to do it, do you think your experience would be different? Do you think, mm. how how do you think you'd navigate self-disclosure in the workplace? Because that's one of the things that in most of the women that I've spoken to who are who haven't created a world where they're self-employed mm. to have that 
control or that um, autonomy over the working environment. Self-disclosure is something that comes up time and time again of not feeling comfortable, despite however many policies or things or cultures that organizations have. It's something that is actually a really hard thing to do to self-disclose. Yeah, I I think I would have really struggled with it, Catherine. I think so. The reason I don't work in that environment anymore is, um, you know, I've I've had quite a few episodes of of burnout in my career. So I used to work in very fast, dynamic um, environments, and um, I was always stressed. I was really always really stressed out. And, you know, I had feedback throughout the sort of 90s and noughties of, you know, you need to learn to manage your stress, you need to not show your emotions so much. Um, so, you know, I'd been masking a lot before that anyway, but certainly to survive and thrive and progress professionally, you know, it was part of the remit. You you have to conform, you have to withhold how you're really feeling, you have to cover up your stress to disguise it so um you know whilst I was in those environments I absolutely love I love fashion and I love working with all the people that I work with you know there's so much creativity and innovation and I really wanted to before working at ASOS I worked at Topshop and um you know I was given some some really amazing opportunities to create innovative cultures and to really um, improve motivation and make it a really engaging environment and I was trusted to to put a lot of things in place that before they would have been like you know having all these away days where we might have been doing um lots of different activities around voice we, we did um we made over a house for charity um, for women's refuge as part of a leadership program. Um, and so, you know, it's trying to align what's going on in the community with individual expression, you know, but, but doing good. So I had a lot of really um, great opportunities, but um, as I progressed um, through the ranks, you know, politics and being in a boardroom, you know, those things were so stressful because you cannot read. I, I couldn't read what was going on. You know, the, the, it's quite can be quite Machiavellian environments, actually, boardrooms. And so not being able to really read the politics or see what was going on behind the scenes, that was hugely stressful for me. So I'd had quite a few episodes of burnout and um, I left in 2011 um, and I was really quite severely burnt out and it took me quite a few years to get over it. And um, I just didn't want to go back into that environment. I, I left carrying a story of failure for a really long time and I really felt like I'd failed to succeed in those environments because I didn't fit and I couldn't do what they needed of me. So um I totally get how challenging it would be for many women to disclose because, you know, it's just not understood well enough in organisations, in institutions, in society at large. And um, so, you know, the onus is then on the individual to educate and to deal with a lot of prejudice alone and in isolation. And it must be so challenging for for lots of people in those environments and my contribution to that is um I've sort of hosted panels and I've done some talks 
um, around recruiting and removing the barriers for neurodiversity because there's so many amazing talents that we have. Mm -hmm. Our ability to um, create systems, to see problems, to cut through it all, to um, come up with novel and innovative ways to to solve things, um, to want to make it better. And, you know, organisations are losing out if they if they put in barriers in place um, and they're expecting everybody to communicate in exactly the same way. So whilst I was in those environments, I was probably trying to do my bit to, to create environments and individuality to thrive, not really realising why. Um, and sort of from outside it, I could see how challenging that would be. And I want to do my bit by using my experience in culture and recruitment and all those things to speak out when I can to change perceptions but um there's a lot of work to be done before that changes that's a huge amount of work isn't there yeah and so you were talking there Andrea about these um bouts of burnout that you had Mm. when you were working obviously unaware that that might have been attributed to autistic burnout adapting adjusting but your adaptation at that point was to leave your career leave the environment in which you were working in to try and create an environment in which you could thrive so what do you recognize then as some of the struggles that you have or you did have working in that environment so you were talking about the boardroom Mm -hmm. and um you know the environment and the people that you were working with but what what have or what do you struggle with? What would you say are, are, are the things that you struggle with the most? So I'm quite direct in how I communicate. And um, I think particularly for women, or, you know, we're sort of socialised that, uh, that that's not acceptable to, to, to be incredibly direct. So there's a lot of energy to have to dress it up and go around the houses. Um, And in the roles that I've done, I've often played the role of facilitating quite difficult discussions to remedy them and to sort of create peacefulness and for people to work well together. Um, But when I was really exhausted and tired, all that sort of small talk and dressing it up just became harder and harder. So I'd often be penalised for my directness or, you know, if I was really direct with somebody quite senior, you know, they'd find a way to, you know, get me back. I think the sort of the direct communication could be a challenge. Um, I think my ability to manage my stress. So, you know, often I probably was having meltdowns when I was really stressed um, where, you know, there would just be a tipping point where it was just like, you know, could could be quite explosive in my responses to, to things. You know, I'd have to be really quite exhausted to get to that point. Um, I'd be ill every sort of three to six months. I'd just be like wiped out with a virus or something. So it was affecting me physically. Yeah, I mean, those were really the, the main things. And I think probably in the group dynamic situation where I wasn't able to, I could see the eye exchanges. I knew that, you know, people were exchanging looks about either what I was saying or doing, but I couldn't understand what those looks were or, I, you know, couldn't second guess. I knew I was doing something that they weren't happy about, but, you know, to be able to really identify what it was. So I think the sort of group dynamics and the politics and understanding what's going on behind. And, you know, when people say they're going to do something and they don't do it, Mm. you know, they'll say like, yeah, this is what we're going to go and do. And then 
they'd take a different course or they then would start um, working with someone else in a way that just didn't add up for, you know, what they were saying. So there's just so much bewilderment in those environments and it was difficult to navigate that amount of uncertainty, I think. I, I didn't fit. I, yeah. you know, ultimately, I didn't fit in those environments. And did you recognise then that the more stressed you became in that environment, you were talking about meltdowns and having more meltdowns Mm -hmm. and you were talking about it being quite explosive. So can you describe what a meltdown feels like for you, Andrea, what, what, or what that might look like? Because it's very different, isn't it? For, for, for everybody that I speak to, Mm -hmm. everybody's, I I describe mine as overspills, um, you know, emotional overspills where it's just tears, tsunamis of tears. um, But it is different for everybody. So what, what does it feel like for you? So it, for me, it's, it can feel quite explosive in the sort of outpouring of emotion, just, you know, very tearful, just get to a point where I feel like I just can't cope anymore. I can't, it's all too much. I feel overwhelmed. Um, so at home, a meltdown will look very different to how it will look publicly. And, you know, I, I don't really have any meltdowns outside of my home, but at home I'm I'm laughing because my poor husband you know he um is just the calmest loveliest person but you know it can be suddenly that I just explode over something like something that's broken or something that's forgotten something very minor but it feels so terrible afterwards after you've had this explosion you just sort of feel like utterly defeated oh I'm just so awful it's really awful what's just happened and you just just feel you know I'd never be violent or I'd never but I might say some really hurtful things um I just really want the overwhelm to stop um so it's a it's a really horrible uncomfortable process and I can't really think of many incidents in the work environment where I would have been that explosive um but I probably just got to the sort of points where my tolerance had reached a level that I just couldn't deal with any more stress. And so might react to something in quite a strong way that I wouldn't normally do. So I suppose publicly, that's what it looks like, a very strong reaction that you try to just withdraw from the environment as soon as you can. Privately, it can, it can just feel like your whole world is collapsing and you just can't cope anymore. And then you get to a point where the tears have sort of you've cried it all out and you just you just feel dreadful you just feel like sort of bewildered and why can't I cope why does this happen um and yeah you know I've, I've been to some quite dark places where um I've just felt like there's something wrong with me or what's wrong with me um so it's it's a really unpleasant feeling and you asking that question there saying why does this happen and that Mm. fundamentally is the foundation of your work isn't it because Mm. you describe creating environments for neurodiversity to thrive Mm. that's where your work as a coach as a writer as an activist aims to help people so for yourself then in your own context from a personal perspective what have or what are you doing to create that environment for yourself to enable you to thrive because you've just made a connection there haven't you a link Mm. between stress 
meltdowns, feeling overwhelmed, getting mm. to that that place where you feel like you can't cope. So what have you done then to adapt, to adjust in your environment? For me, through the whole period of kind of getting from awareness to acceptance, um, privately, I write a lot. Like writing is how I make sense of the world. Sometimes speaking is a real challenge. Um, so I think maybe the timing um, or just the fact that I love writing. Um, I, I wrote a lot about how I was feeling and trying to make sense of it. And once you're aware of your autism, I don't know if it's true of everybody, but for me, I replayed most of my life through a totally different lens. It's obviously fading as I age, but I have quite an amazing memory and um, quite visual. So uh, particularly painful experiences, I can replay them and it's sort of like a scene in my head. So I use writing a lot to make sense of my feelings and thoughts I had about my past and previous experiences. Um, And as a coach, um, I've got loads of tools. So I use use a lot of the tools that I use with my clients because a lot of the work I do with clients is about self-acceptance. So um, I already had a lot in my environment to help me. Um, So it was just about tapping into that. Writing has really kind of helped me to make sense of it. And I think as I went through that process of awareness, I I always feel um, that you need to process your own pain, your own rawness before you're ready to share it with the world. Um, And I really still believe that. So I did a lot of work for quite a lot of that time. You know, I might have been sharing a message with one or two people that I instinctively knew. I really trust you. I feel safe with you. And I had really positive responses. But as I started to talk more about it, as I was getting towards acceptance, those responses weren't always positive. You know, all the classic things like... Um, you can't be autistic how are you autistic you know they would understand that you know my son is autistic very much because he just presents to the world in a way that's natural to him he doesn't mask it but you know I had a lot of really questioning my thinking like you know that classic you don't look autistic you don't seem autistic you don't and you know whilst I realize a lot of the responses People think they're being helpful because probably as I was going along my journey, I wasn't that confident in my in disclosing it. And so they were probably picking up on a lot of those things and trying to comfort me or reassure me that there was nothing wrong with me. But you have to have some quite difficult discussions as you go through it. And I chose to go down the diagnosis route for myself because... I did go through sort of quite a bit of time where I was like, am I imagining this? Am I totally like making this up? Like, am I, you know, because throughout life, I have sort of been messaged that, you know, I'm difficult or um, overly dramatic, overly sensitive, you know, making something out of nothing. So I did, I, I did just keep looping back and thinking, God, am I going mad? Am I, you know, am I making this up? Um, and I think because I was 45, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd managed to navigate life this far. Why open it up and look at it? But I really knew that if I want, and I do want um, 
both my kids to grow up without feeling ashamed of, of their difference, um, of any difference that they might have. I want them to feel natural and just to be who they are in the world. I knew I had to do that work on myself because when you are trying to push difference away from a child who very clearly is different and that's harmful I needed to do that work to work through the shame I felt in my own difference so I didn't pass that on to him so I I wanted to go through a diagnosis um, process and when you do that you have to talk to your family Mm. you you have to um, you know even at 45 talk about how did you develop as a child so you know I had to have conversations with my family about it and perhaps their generation are not so willing to to look at these things and I do understand why that might be because I think you know any kind of mental illness or difference was in you were institutionalized you were locked up Mm. you know there was it, it was it was really dangerous when they grew up and so um you know, that sort of prejudice, but I'm also very aware of that ancestral pass on and, you know, what you, you take from the generation before. I'm not sure I'm answering your question here, Catherine, about how I adapted my environment, but... Um, you've, you've answered it really well because you've been doing this unknowingly, haven't you, throughout your life? And when people say, well, you don't look like my autistic daughter or my autistic child, a child really doesn't have control over their environment they are they are put into a world that wants to make everybody the same that treats Mm. everybody the same Mm. that doesn't necessarily recognize that difference and it sounds like you're the person who is advocating for that difference for your children Mm. um but obviously you didn't have that growing up because you didn't know we were in a different time everything that you've just explained there so if you could go back to your a younger version of you think about Mm. yourself at the age that your son is now Mm. what would you want to say to yourself Mm. it always makes me want to cry when I think of this question because I, I you know I do feel such protection for that little girl and and myself as a teenager because um, I was just so bewildered about the world. I just didn't understand a lot of people's reactions or why I wasn't getting it right. I knew I wasn't, but I couldn't understand why. So I would really like to say to 10-year-old me, there's there's nothing wrong with you. You're not wrong. It's okay to be different. It's okay um, to not be the same as everybody else. And isn't it great that you you know you see and experience the world differently like you know I feel um I kind of think of it as a a thick fence really like I I feel the atmosphere I feel other people's feelings and um to be able to tune in and connect I think as an adult I'd like to to sort of utilize that more and how I connect with others I think before I've always I used to think, God, I don't feel very well. What's wrong with me? Or um, well, this is a bit strange. Why am I feeling like this? The downside is you sort of can overabsorb other people's feelings and think they're your own. But I would just say to her, like, oh, well, isn't it wonderful that you can feel all these feelings and um, you're not wrong 
in 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 what you're feeling or thinking you know the sort of the sensory processing when you feel joy you just feel the most wonderful joy um you know with music or I, I remember probably as a 10 year old um my mum used to say to me you'll stop your gittering but I used to giggle I used to laugh my head off at things um over and over again so Ghostbusters I totally love Ghostbusters I'd watch it over and over again and Janine when she she does the hello Ghostbusters so just things that are just joyous and you feel them and I love dancing and I love music and and often um I was told to sort of sit down be quiet and you know just sit down and be sensible I think definitely as a generation this is no criticism of my parents but just very much they were brought up to believe like children should be seen and not heard but um yeah go back to, to me as a child I would just just you know feel the joy dance roll around in your roller skates and love fame and isn't that wonderful yeah I would just really encourage her to not be frightened of standing out or being different and don't feel that you have to be the same as everyone else and you're in the final stages of writing a book this is who I am a guide to thriving with late life autism discovery which will be published by Jessica Kingsley publishing later this year what change are you making then Andrea in the world this is a question I'm asking to all the guests in this Mm. season of the podcast what change are you leading in the world Mm. when when I was in the early stages of lockdown and just so desperate to find answers to all my questions I couldn't really find anything that helped me to understand the emotions I was feeling both for myself and also, um, you know, having a child who's different. So there's a duality in that, that looking at it. And I got really cross with a lot of books that were, you know, nonsense, rubbish that, you know, autistic women don't understand fashion or they're not very interested. It's like, this is rubbish. This is nonsense. This doesn't reflect or represent me. The change I want to make in the world is I want to provide tools for women that are discovering this about themselves. I want to um, share a bit about my experience but also give them loads of resources and tools and activities to help them to navigate and progress from an awareness through to an acceptance. Because I think when we do discover this about ourselves, a large part, well, for for me, I just was like, I just want to, to be accepted. I want to feel like I belong. And through the, the sort of that's, journey that I was going on I I've eventually realized that it's not going to come from anybody outside I have to accept this in myself and and then I was like well this is the work I do I you know I work with women to to help them um to accept themselves and to love all the things that they're brilliant at and um to you know help get clear on their direction so so I want to, to give tools to people late discovered autists or anyone on the kind of late discovered neurodiversity to, to help them navigate this sort of avalanche of emotions and um, the, the challenges that there are when you start to unravel 
your world and your identity so that that's a big part that I want to play I also want to speak wherever I can to change perceptions so the environments that I've worked in before fashion digital any kind of business environment where I can go along and change perceptions about what neurodivergence is what it looks like how it could be experienced to remove those barriers you know to open doors for people to make the the environments that people work in um just much easier for them to navigate and to be accepted and for adjustments to be made accommodations to be made you know it's one part is is the sort of awareness and understanding but then businesses and organizations they have to then walk the walk and and make the accommodations for for people to to work in ways that work for them because they're going to get the best out of them you know it's just a no-brainer really I am really experiencing firsthand the barriers in education to getting access for your child to what they need to progress academically the same as uh, neurotypical kids because we expect children, you know, I, I live in this gorgeous uh, alternative city that's, you know, full of alternative thinking, but there's really big schools here and that's a sensory processing nightmare for neurodivergent kids. So, you know, I, my boys are lucky enough to go to a school that's really inclusive and really celebrates neurodiversity. They have weeks and days and, you know, where they get the kids to stand up and talk about their difference and they really create environments for it but that getting access to funding is a total nightmare um so I you know I I would love to be quite active in that arena as well because if you are rejected from the first learning organization institution you are in because you're seen as difficult and you're excluded and autistic children that are in mainstream education 50% of them end up being excluded um, you know, it's really high figures. And then, you know, they're just shunted along many different institutions. So I'm very passionate about that. And um, I really also want there to be a change in how, you know, women are assessed. I don't know all the psychological terms for it, but, you know, there's not enough research that goes into how autism presents in girls and women and non-binary um, you know, it's a very narrow view of how autism presents. So I'd love there to be training in all sort of first line um, education, health and law, you know, people that are dealing with us as the public to understand um, how difference can present and, and how they need to adapt to give us the help that we need. So quite a lot. I'd like to be involved in quite a lot. And I can't do everything. And that is, um, that's always been a challenge for me. So can you, can you think about, Andrea, a childhood experience that you now recognise as an autistic experience? Is there anything that stands out for you? Yeah, there's a, a really obvious one. So I moved from Scotland to England when I was eight. I very quickly became aware of, of my difference just from the way I talked I hadn't maybe been so conscious of of any difference that I had so you know my whole thing was about fitting not standing out I have to fit in I I must you know adapt to to show that I'm the same as everyone else so for a short time I had um, an English accent at school and a Scottish accent at home and you know when I think about that I mean the amount of energy that must have taken an eight-year-old to 
pick up a, an accent so quickly. And I felt like I'd, I'd done that for years, that change. But um, talking to my mum, she said, oh, no, you, you ditched your Scottish accent after a couple of months. And I'm sure it was a really beautiful Scottish accent as well. You know, I often joke that I wasn't very true to my roots. But, um, you know, that mimicking and masking, I think that's the first consciousness I have of it. And I think um, being a chameleon and uh, adapting the way I look and sound. Um, that was a long-term career from the age of eight onwards, really. I, I'm conscious of it now. I, I tried to not do it, but I, I, I can sort of find myself mimicking people's accents and it's not because I'm trying to be disrespectful to them. It's, it just was a survival mechanism. If people want to get in touch with you, Andrea, um, you've obviously got your book that's coming out later mm. this year but how can people find you how can people work with you if people wanted to collaborate with you perhaps on some of the change that you want to see in the world and some of the change that you're leading in the world how can we find you so I am mostly on Instagram that's my uh, social media of choice I I, I do feel quite anxious being on social media. So I, I really want to try and have a much more positive exchange. So this year, I'm, I'm going to actively ask people, what would you like? How can I um, provide content that's useful? So you can find me on there and please come and join me in conversation and um, tell me what things you'd find useful. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I don't hang out there very often because of kind of leaving a career that I didn't feel I left on a kind of high note. Um, but I am on there and I do want to join in the conversation more and I do post articles on there. I've also got my own website um, that you can find either on LinkedIn or um, Instagram. And I, I post uh, articles and, and things on there regularly. But yeah, I think I'd like to my you know invite people to come and find me on Instagram and join me in conversation. And I, it's a very personal journey that you must go on to get to your own self-acceptance in your difference. But once you've done that and you feel comfortable come and join your voice to the conversation because the more of us that can join in and share our lived experiences of our difference and the changes we want to see, the more likely that changes to happen. So yeah, it's it's not easy to do, but I feel a, such a, a wonderful sense of belonging actually amongst the neurodivergence community because people are willing to listen and share and um it's it's really as, as comforting to to know that other people have had that same experience and want to make the same changes so yeah okay well thank you for for coming on and being a guest Andrea it's been really nice to talk to you yeah and you thank you very much Catherine I think this work you're doing is so important and I'm delighted that you are doing this podcast series I think there'll be so much we can gain from hearing all different stories from people and their experience so thank you thank you 